Hello and welcome to this, the 49th episode of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Ogue McAnally, Artistic Director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, which is always most important. Please give me work. More recently, I am a director and a producer here at Rise. I am a 15-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar because we are back home in Ireland and it's lovely to be back. But we uh, we had a really, really lovely time over in Finland. What an amazing trip that was. A lovely tour and a lovely festival over there. Um, a very kind of surreal experience taking this, you know, very typically classically Dublin show over to Finland and getting standing ovations every night from packed houses um, and weirdly I was expecting that because there's an Irish music festival over there and uh, as part of this music festival obviously they have a theatre strand but they also have a parallel Irish film festival going on there as well um, which was massively well attended which is brilliant to see uh, but I, so I presume there was this big expat community over there there isn't. It doesn't exist. The audiences were like 99% finished. There was maybe, I don't know, less than half a dozen Irish people in the house each night. It was bizarre. Um, but they loved it. They lapped it up. They seemed to get everything. They were laughing at the gags. In fact, what may well be my finest theatrical achievement in a 15-year career is getting a laugh on the gag in Fight Night uh, about the Odlum's Owl. Now, if you can get a Finnish audience to laugh at a gag about the Odlum's Owl, I think you're doing something all right, so I was very proud of myself. Uh, but it was a lovely experience, you know, two great shows over there, and uh, and lovely to see the show travel. I mean, you know, we know how uh, insanely well Mike Sheehan got on with Fight Night back in Glasgow at the start of the year. The response to the show over there was just phenomenal. The critics went wild for Mike and went wild for Gavin's play. Um, and I guess, you know, I was thinking at the time, apart from the fact that Gavin had written an amazing play and Mike was giving it a phenomenal performance, that, you know, there's the shared Celtic history or whatever there that we can buy into each other's stories but bringing it over to Finland my god I really didn't expect the response to be uh, as warm as it was but they loved it it was lovely to do and we were uh, really really pleased to get over there and do it the fight night world revolution keeps ticking over um, so look as ever each week we are bringing this to you free of charge we have promised that we will never ever charge for these conversations but we are looking for you to put your money back into Irish theatre and as we tell you each and every week the simplest way to go and put your money back into Irish theatre is to go and buy some tickets hey Hey, maybe make it some Rise Productions tickets. Go buy yourself some Fight Night tickets. We've got some shows going up, as you know. Um, you know, the whole ethos behind this podcast is to support, promote, and celebrate all that's great about Irish theatre. So go and pick yourself up some tickets, whether that's to Fight Night at the Viking Theatre in Clontarf, or whether that's to Fight Night in uh, Theatre Upstairs at Lanigan's, or any other theatre around the country. Go and do it. Put your money where your mouth is. And of course, as we tell you every week, there are many ways you can support without having to put your hand in your pocket. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, the time has come. You're you're getting a guilt trip this week. Uh, we have been at this now uh, 11 months, nearly the full year done. As you know, we're wrapping it up on the 1st of November. And so we'd really like to go out on top. So if possible, if you've been enjoying these podcasts for the last number of weeks or months or, you know, nearly a year now, if you've been with us from the start, we would like you to uh, give back a little because like we say every week, we're not asking you to give back monetarily. So maybe go and give us a bit of support. 
do please make this be the week where you go on over to iTunes and leave us a review or click to rate us over there to bump us up in the charts. Maybe go over to your Facebook page, leave us a post about the podcast over there, maybe retweet the link that we put out on Twitter. Uh, do go and subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes. It means that the last uh, whatever four episodes will get magicked into your inbox every Thursday. Um, go back and listen to all the other episodes. Give Peter Daly that lift he needs in his life. Get him up there in the charts. Make him feel like he has a purpose. Um, of course, you can always follow us on Facebook. We are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Rise Ireland. Make this be the week that you either follow us, like us, retweet, repost, leave us a review, click the five stars. We're not asking too much, guys. Please go and support us at this time. So look, that brings us to our guest this week. And uh, as we've done over the last couple of weeks with going back to Russia for the Fringe and indeed Jimmy for the Fringe, uh, it's now Dublin Theatre Festival time. So there's only one man we could do it. The man who, as you'll hear me say later on in the interview, I firmly believe, and I'm on the public record as saying, uh, of the last decade, Willie White is the most influential man in Irish theatre. He has been absolutely to the forefront of so much of what has been uh, fresh and new and exciting and invigorating about Irish theatre from uh, from so much of his work throughout his career. Um, and in particular, uh, from his time uh, in his stewardship of Project Arts Centre, which is such an important venue, uh, and his presence there was so important. I mean, uh, if you look around... Any of the companies that have done anything in the last five or ten years, be it Theatre Club, The Company, Broken Talkers, Making Strange, uh, Annabelle Common and Hatch, whoever else you want to list off, you know, we're all part of the Project Catalyst thing under, uh, under Willie's stewardship. And so he's done so much for promoting um, young and emerging and exciting and edgy companies. And uh, I just think he is, uh, he's the man, he's the one to, to look to. And, uh, and I think he's doing a pretty spectacular job. So look, as usual, let's get straight into it. Here he is, the brilliant Willie White. The wonderful Willie White. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm honoured to finally have you here. But you say that to all the guys. <laughs> right, as every week, let's get back to the very beginning. Uh, why theatre, when theatre? Was there a particular spark that set you off on this course? Uh, I can't really put my finger on it. I grew up in Abbey Leaks, County Leash, and when I was in the primary school, I played the tin whistle in our school band. We had... Um, we only had tin whistles, it was a complete tin whistle ensemble. And during <laughs> right. the Abbey Leaks Maytime Festival, we'd march down the town in our orange kilts, orange caps, green socks, green shirts, or green ties, white shirts, playing Fáinne Gallon Lay, uh, more or less in time with each other. We'd march wow. down to, <clears throat> to Father Breen Park and assemble with one or two um, vehicles from the uh, Defence Force or something like that. And then towards <laughs> the end of, of my time in, in primary school in Abbey Leaks, I don't know why, but I was told that I should go up to the nuns where they were assembling Abbey Leakes's entry into Leash's, uh, into Abbey Leakes's, um entry into the, the variety competition, the Leash section of the community games. Right. So myself and Michael Kennedy and Declan Delaney, they could play instruments and I couldn't really accept the tune whistle and I wasn't asked to, but they had guitar and accordion. We went up and formed part of, I guess it was an early, an early super group. <laughs> the, the, the Louis Walshers of Abbey Leakes had, for, I don't know, I don't remember being particularly... Uh, extroverted child but anyway I joined this ensemble and it was the time of Nicole's a little loving a little giving being in the Eurovision I remember right and we won the leash heats and then went on to represent leash in Mosney in uh, 1982 which in many respects would be the pinnacle of your artistic career to date 
Pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> and uh, we, I recall, were completely outclassed. I think there were some rules that you couldn't have a lot of stuff, like you were allowed to have a table and two chairs or something like that to try and level the playing field. But I remember other people had these creations of piehos, which I hadn't ever seen in my life. But we, you know, I also remember I left a new pair of slippers behind in Mosny. But that was my start, I guess. In secondary school, um, I was in school plays. I went to university. I took my career guidance advice, teacher's advice. Uh, career teacher's advice and uh, did science god love us for a year it was a time of uh, like the late 80s so it was the first IT revolution was coming I'd said I liked English she said you can always read books in your spare time wow uh, so I did a year of science but on my way across to the science block in UCD um, pretty near to the beginning of term I bumped into the sister of a friend of mine and who told me that they were a few people short for the freshest play in Dramsock which I hadn't really been aware of um, and I went over and I think simply by virtue of showing up I was cast as a not a spear carrier but maybe a pitchfork carrier and Lady Gregory's spreading the news and that was my introduction to uh, university drama societies particularly Dramsock where I stayed for many happy years towards the end of the time I was on the committee one year I was its auditor in 1994 I no, was it 94 maybe 93 directed plays went ISDA the student drama festival ran um, ISDA with two other friends of mine for UCD when we hosted it in 1995 so all of that time I wasn't learning an awful lot about theatre I would say it was quite I mean I was learning about theatre making yes the nuts and bolts but and I've been amazed sometimes when I go back to UCD that you know there as the theatre looks pretty much like it did 20 years ago and possibly 20 years before that it's a very enclosed community aesthetically but I think I wouldn't use that as a reason to talk it down. I think I learned fantastic things about teamwork. I've made friends that I still have to this day. Yeah. And uh, just working together towards a common end and making lots of things out of eight by four flats and <laughs> cheap material from Murphy Sheedy's and uh, cheap paint from wherever. So uh, after UCD, I set up Loose Cannon Theatre Company with a bunch of friends. It was actually originally meant to be a vehicle for my own directorial ambitions. I'd won Best um, Director at ISDA in 1994 with a production of Dermot Bulger's One Last White Horse. And um, so after college, I suppose, I thought the thing to do was to try and set up a, a company. Well, that's an interesting thing for me because I, I'm interested in the evolution of that through your time at Dramsock because we've had a lot of people on the podcast talk about the great benefit of uh, you know Dramsock or players or any of that is that you're thrown in at the deep end and one week, like you say, you're pitchfork carrying, the next week you're directing, the next week you're operating lights mm. and whatever else. So... At that stage, directing was what was doing it for you, no, or a mix of everything? No, I didn't really. I mean, I suppose all my only experience of theatre um, would have been uh, acting. Right. I mean, I had in the nineteen eighties, I was in school plays, and I think they had these old valve systems with levers. I had no notion of how they worked or what they did, particularly. And then a bit of I remember being in production of Oh What a Lovely War, and people use really rank smelling ketchup for the blood but that was the level of the special effects that I was used to okay so in terms of anything more creative or the other elements of theatre didn't have so much knowledge in UCD because I was curious or maybe because there were charismatic people doing it that I wanted to knock about with I did operate lights I never designed lights I designed a set Maria actually I was nominated for best set design which is hilarious <laughs> theatre I won the best director but that was I wouldn't have ever taken myself seriously that was more of a pragmatic thing yeah so I, I didn't really have a notion that a directing was a job that existed or one that I could do until I was in college for a few years. And in my earnest um, uh, drum suck years, the first thing I directed was a, an assembly by me of the works of Sylvia Plath, um, <laughs> <clears throat> featuring three women in kind of long, white, floaty robes and uh, a kind of, a, an, what would you call it, an assembly um, of my early dramaturgical instincts yes, of indeed. Sylvia Plath's poetry and prose, kind of a, bi a biographical right. account of Sylvia shared between three voices. So then, 
okay, college time finishes up, mm. and then we, we set up the company. What was what was the birth of it like? Well, the first thing um, loose cannon production that ever happened was I think at the end. So the thing I should say before that was there was some of my college mates were more precocious than me. I guess would be would have been the reason. So Conor McPherson and people like um, uh, Colin O'Connor, Jason Byrne, Colleen O'Connor. They formed Fly by Night Theatre Company. I think it was in nineteen ninety two. Right. Um, I'd made sandwiches for them for their inaugural production. I think it was the first production in the International Bar that summer, and so I'd seen. Connor's actually younger than me, but I'd seen people like that strike out on their own. So I knew this was something that you could do. So then, by the time it came, I kind of dithered a bit, um, and because I invested so much in drums, it took me a little bit uh, longer to achieve escape velocity from UCD. Right. Um, but I did eventually with the Masters. And uh, so, yeah, I thought the thing to do was to set up a theatre company as a vehicle, as I said, for my own ambitions. And the first show we did was in the International Bar as well. And it was called, it was, <clears throat> the reason it's kind of excised from the, um, the official history of Loose Cannon, uh, at least as I recounted, is because it was by Loose Cannon Theatre Group. And this was a play called The Sprouts of Wrath, which I think was pretty substantially indebted to Robert Rankin's books, which are these kind of science fiction fantasy, Miles and Goblin. I'd never heard of him. Um, so I remember directing two actors of some kind of like quantum physics game of darts in the international market. I think it went okay. We might have broken even. But then the real start was <coughs> the following year, excuse me, and I had wanted to direct a version of Jim Cartwright's two. And I knew Jason Byrne, who, though he didn't attend, not the comedian, I knew Jason Byrne, um, and though he didn't attend UCD, uh, he knocked about with a bunch of people who were involved in Fly By Night, sure. and he had um, ambitions of his own. I was going to do two, and then he told me that he had an, a plan, an idea. He'd done the acting course in Trinity yeah. in the meantime, so he had a group of people around him who he could um, uh, recruit into a theatre company. And uh, so Jason said he wanted to do Julius Caesar, and I maybe I didn't have enough confidence in my idea, or it sounded like his was much more advanced in its conception, so I said, why don't... We take the slot we have in the crypt, and I, you do the play, and I'll help you do it. Right. Again, probably I didn't really have a notion of, <coughs> excuse me, what a producer did. So we did that. It was the debut production of Loose Cannon. I think it happened around the Ides of March, uh, nineteen ninety six, in the Crypt Arts Centre. I walked past it today, actually, on my lunch break. It's now um, of all the exciting things, a, a museum to the Revenue Service. Very necessary service, but <laughs> I'd like to think an arts centre would be better use of the space. Um, but anyway, so that went quite well, and in fact so well that um, Eve Aldonick, who were managing the space at the time, invited Loose Cannon to revive it. And it, so at that stage, <coughs> Jass's work was um, advancing, and my interest was uh, waning in being a director, or my confidence was waning in being a director. I did do a production of Wojciech in my own kind of, um, what do you call it, hodgepodge of various existing texts, which was all right, but that was the last thing that I directed for Loose Cannon, which would have been in 1990 six or seven I think so I ended up along with Julie Clark my then girlfriend now wife and Catherine Nealon who's the stage manager and the sister of one of the actors we were working with um, Steve Nealon and of course um, daughter of uh, uh, Des and Bernie Nealon uh, Catherine kind of licked us into shape right um, she I think she was the first inoculation of a bit of uh, or injection of a bit of professionalism into Loose Cannon um, via being a stage manager and um, she of course she got sucked out of Ireland then when Riverdance took off and off she went to America where she still is but um, yeah, so we produced a bunch of shows with Loose Cannon, eventually came to the attention of Project Arts Centre, where Philip McNeil was, and then I think it was probably 1998, January 98 maybe, that Loose Cannon did The White Devil there, and then later that year, Coriolanus and so on. So, you know, it was two, three initially, then two times a year, 
myself and Jilly sitting in the stairs in the in the crypt picking out you know hulling cherry tomatoes for the post show reception and right. they're cleaning up afterwards in in the in the uh, when Project was in theatre space at Henry Place, but everybody else was across the road in um, what you call it in in Sackville. Right. They were hoovering the the dressing room. So yeah, did that, and then in nineteen ninety eight, and you know, so in the meantime, I was doing things like you know working in Milano, did a masters in Trinity, worked in Chapters Bookshop on and off for a long time. But then I got my first proper grown up job in RTE just before my school's ten year reunion. I was delighted with that. <laughs> I was like, I have a job. I'm with somebody you might have heard of. So I got a job in RTE as a reporter researcher on. Uh, later with John Kelly as it was called and did that for a season and a half until it was axed in 99 still working no, con- no connection between those two events no I don't think so no of course the Alina hit, hit the deck as well it was a kind of a late 90s cull um, or a budget tightening exercise which led to the demise of those two programmes but I then with an interlude working on Telethon 2000 which was fascinating I organised for Dustin to be flown to Leitrim and uh, Many other fantastic things besides tried to reduce the number of leg shaving contests that there tended to be. Yes. Uh, everybody had this original idea around the country. But anyway, he was in RTE, trained as an assistant producer, and then worked on the first two seasons of um, The View. And was that a question of juggling that gig with the Loose Cannon stuff as yeah. well? The Loose Cannon was, was, yeah, juggling, but it was light enough. You know, the company would be in production so many times a year. Yeah. Depend, I can't remember exactly when it was, but it might have been in the summertime, which was quieter. But it really was a job that you'd be doing, like with your towel around your waist, having the sh- had the shower in the morning with the computer that you bought with your first Arts Council grant in the, in, in the, in the, um, the apartment, and then doing stuff late at night. I remember yeah. ringing, actually, an actor on Sunday night, and... Uh, he obviously thought we were a more substantial operation than in fact we were, you know, because when I had time, he said, oh, you're very good, you know, he must have thought we were working seven days a week <laughs> in some big, you know, theatre company office, but no, I was just thinking about that um, recently, obviously we were very naive. So I kind of officially um, left that role in Loose Cannon when I got the job in Project in 2002. I was in RTE, I'd done two seasons of View, and that was a fantastic experience, RTE, it was like a formative experience, I learned to do things, I was trained to do something vaguely in the realm of, you know, content, if you want to talk yeah. about it which curation or programming is, um, and learned how to you know, direct studio, uh, direct uh, <clears throat> cameras for packages for inserts, produce the program and so on. Um, and that was fantastic and a great experience. Um, but then, then, then RT in their wisdom uh, decided the next assignment I should have was working on Fair City. And nothing against Fair City itself, which is a great program and a great asset to RT, but they wanted me to work in a job, which a stint I'd done in the IMI with some of my classmates in the AP training course had said that I wasn't suited for it. I was not a completer finisher, but they wanted to give me some kind of completer finisher job. Um, and I really wasn't relishing that. And fortunately, I remember going to shoot <coughs> a clip from Rough Magic's production of Copenhagen, which right. was in Project Arts Centre in 2002. And I think this, the shoot was early in the morning. And I either, either that way or the other way around, I remember going getting changed in the toilets of the Montclair Hotel where I did the interview. So there was, I had a secret in my heart when I was doing that shoot. It was May 2000, uh, 2002. And anyway, I'd gone for the project job before, hadn't gotten it. Um, and I went for this time. And uh, after a second interview, I think, I got it. So with regret, um, I had to decline the assignment in Fair City and went on to project um, in 2002. Talk to me about the appeal of the project gig to you at the time. I mean, you know, the Loose Cannon experience was there, the previous experience in student drama. There was this career going in RTE. What was it particularly about the project gig that spoke to you? Um, well, I suppose I had been aware of the first show I went to see in Dublin that I can recall, other than being brought by the father of a then girlfriend of mine to see um, the House of Bernardo Alba in the Gate in 1989. The first show that I went to, I kind of think off my own bat, self-directed, was... Um, 
they were called Pigs Back at the time. Yes. Fish Amble's production of Don Juan. Right. Um, which was translated by Michael West and featured um, Tom Murphy, R.I.P. and Dominic West right. as Don Juan and Scannerell. And um, I guess maybe we had a, an awareness that these were some, or certainly Dominic was some precocious person from players. But that was the first time I went to Project. So I had been aware of, of Project Art Centre. Uh, and so I remember seeing The Gay Detective. I remember seeing a bunch of other uh, stuff during that time. But really, the time I was in college, you're very preoccupied with only seeing work in college. The disadvantage of UCD is that it's out of town. I think yeah. in, in Trinity, you probably come into town more so. But I suppose the first real introduction um, to Project Art Centre was when Fiat McAneel became interested in the work of Lewis Cannon and invited us to make work in uh, for or in Project Art Centre. And that was a real eye-opener, a real revelation for me. I, for the first time I met curators of visual art. I uh, got to see the Crash Ensemble playing contemporary music. I saw my first piece of contemporary dance in Ireland. And it really was a, a very formative experience just with Lewis Cannon and, and experiencing all these things. And then that was a great time in, um, in such an unlikely place for Project, but that's where they landed while they were redeveloping the building. But in Henry Place, the theatre yeah. place in Henry Place, it was a fantastic time. I have vivid memories of standing outside with everybody in the summertime as the uh, show, whatever it was, was about to go up in that dingy lane and then all heading over to the Sackville <laughs> afterwards. Uh, it was a nice little community. So th that, that project was really my eye-opener to contemporary art. And meeting Fiat is a very charismatic person um, and, was, and you know very influential. I was very impressed by him and I learned lots of things from talking to the likes of him and Paul Johnson, who may have been dance artist in residence at the time, and Valerie Connor is the curator. And then after that, I should have added, after that then working in, in RTE on later with John Kelly and The View I had an even more of an introduction to contemporary art across yeah. all kinds of disciplines so I just felt that that was really interesting and I seem to remember saying to myself when I was working in RTE that you know it's better to be helping people to make it than talking about what they've made kind of vibe right okay. so I so I enjoyed um, art and I enjoyed being involved in helping people to make art and uh, I, I enjoyed the fact that the Project Art Centre was involved in contemporary art um, so that I think is what drew me towards it's funny I was reading my auditor's note from the Dramsock yearbook, I think 92-3, and uh, I'm giving out to my fellow students about only doing Brian Friel. And um, <laughs> I might even have used the word contemporary. So uh, for some reason, I don't know why it was, it was a preoccupation of mine right. at the time. Now, I'm a great admirer of Brian Friel, but I think in somewhere like Dramsock or somewhere in uh, like Project Art Centre, we also have to give some attention to now rather than what has gone before. Having said that, you look at this year's festival, you think Tom Murphy is an extremely contemporary writer. Well, that's true too. So yeah, just meeting kind of charismatic people and uh, you know seeing some of the New York minimal stuff from Crash Ensemble, like work by Steve Reich, that I probably would have heard of. I remember Simon Kenny now, Cy Schroeder, who along with his uh, friend Darrow Grady played this kind of industrial soundtrack to my production of um, uh, Dermot Bulger's One Last, One Last One Horse. I remember Simon introducing me to the Steve Reich tape pieces from the 60s, but actually seeing Crash Ensemble Playing some of those works from the 60s live was, was fantastic, like the microphone piece. And I think New York Counterpoint, I remember Michael Seaver playing that. So that was just fantastic and eye-opening and mind-opening. Had you particular ambitions for project that you went, well, what I want to do with my tenure here is X, or I'd like to achieve this, or I'd like to change that? or Probably not. I'm sure I said something, and I know I said something at the time to the to the board when they're interviewing me that they found sufficiently persuasive <laughs> but you've got to remember that project was in a little bit of difficulty in 2001-2 it had opened a new building in 2000 it recruited a new artistic director in 1999 and there was great optimism and hope because um, at last project had a new building um, as opposed to kind of being in a bunch of shacks the other thing I should have added actually was so interested was I 
in project by project that when I was doing the Masters in Trinity in 1997-8 what I wrote about was the history of Project Arts Centre right and partly that was because I thought this is really a fascinating story and also then because I was being told things in uh, my classes that I knew to be incorrect that it wasn't founded by the Sheridans um, it was founded a few years earlier of course they had a very important role in yes. it from 1969 but they were just facts that I thought it would be useful to gather and as I wasn't going to write a monograph in some esoteric bit of Brian Friel I thought that this work of reconstruction would be useful so I wrote a history uh, or compiled a history of Project Arts Centre particularly the theatre though I wrote about visual arts as well from 1966 to 77 and also a chronology of the plays that were produced there wow. and by whom yeah just because and it's actually a preoccupation of mine to this day is that when we look at the history of Irish theatre you know project will get a paragraph and if you're lucky operating theatre will get a sentence yeah. and the history of Irish theatre is written very much in terms of uh, writers not institutions or not companies and uh, another thing that I did in Project Arts Centre was we piloted just towards the end of my time there a digital performing arts archive which was digitising for example the VHS tape that Fish Amber were kind enough to loan me of that performance of Don Juan wow. from 1990 as well as now we managed to go as far back as Co-Motion's production of, um, oh, what's it called? Uh, not um, Storming the South Pole, it's called Song of the White Man's Burden. And it's actually a 1988 recording, but originated in a 1986 production. I just find that fascinating. Yeah. Because if we look back at history through that time, we can only see it in terms of writers. And then what happens, like the 50th anniversary of the, of the Stanislavski Studios coming up next year. If we were to look at that in terms of new Irish plays, it would be a very incomplete story. Yeah. So that was that was why, and particularly in the case of projects, I suppose what gets forgotten more easily is experimental theatre or contemporary theatre, the kind of the durable works of playwriting that are committed to print and published and in libraries and available in bookshops and so on. They tend to be have a more tenacious grip on, on you know, posterity. But so what I was interested in doing in with project was recovering, if that's not too grandiose a term, recovering or compiling a history of project. And of course that was very useful very very useful to me in Project Arts Centre because I understood that from as far back as 1967 there were tensions productive mostly not always between <laughs> between the, the kind of theatre making and visual arts you yeah. know it was a multidisciplinary space uh, what happened was that Colm um, O'Brien invited his friend Jim Fitzgerald to direct some plays Jim knew some hipster artists they would have been at the time um, they probably still are but you know <clears throat> he was more connected to the bohemian scene and the artistic scene so they used the foyer which is much smaller than the contemporary gate that we know to exhibit paintings and sculptures and then they used the Sunday night to have platform discussions on censorship and to have a teach-in and to have a jazz concert um, so this momentum was what propelled Project into doing something in 67 and so on so yes what did I have any plans for Project is what you asked me I think the, the initial plans were just kind of steady as she goes now by the time I arrived in Project it was already stabilising it had a deficit which was being managed and uh, I was just, I suppose, learning um, what I now know. I don't think I did anything too rash. What I was probably doing was uh, gathering evidence and gaining permission. Um, and, but I, you know, like, I figured out stuff uh, as I went along. To be honest with you, it was a learning experience. It was actually the first grown-up job I'd had in terms of actually managing anyone or anything. Yeah. I was an assistant producer in RTE. The job I'd had immediately before that was... Uh, other than RTE was working in a bookshop I did get to open up and close and cash up but you know I didn't have any managing people thing and I had no yeah. direct involvement in the budget um, and before that I was a waiter in Milano so this is you know an organisation turning over a six figure sum that it was emerging from a period of difficulty but I just tried to just do a really simple thing and just focus on the art and the artists and focus on the quality of the work to the extent that I could yeah yeah. yeah. I mean you've, obviously when you're working somewhere you learn about what's possible you know project always was 
a mixture of particularly from the point of view of the performing arts a mixture of receiving and presenting yeah. we had very little capacity to present work so we were receiving work and you had to make the budget work from the point of view of um, income from rental yeah. of the spaces but also not just rental of the spaces um, in any uh, by any means necessary but actually to trying to have some kind of coherence or quality or aesthetic not, not that there was a unifying aesthetic but again it's always for me like this is a contemporary art centre that's the simplest way to explain it and contemporary means either formally or thematically contemporary it's about now and I yeah. know and I know when I see it there's no formula <laughs> I mean project for most people is arguably the most important space in the country because uh, whilst there are other smaller fringe venues that emerging companies can get access to project has its own dedicated audience that Whereas they, people will go and see the next show in Project rather than for some of the other venues it could be hard to get people in. So it has been massively influential in that regard. But I'm on record as saying that I believe that you are the most influential man of Irish theatre of the last, <laughs> cer certainly of the last decade, if not more. And I'm not only saying it because you're in front of me because I've said it on air before. I didn't, I didn't hear that. I mean, well, no, it's, and, I, and I think it's true and I think particularly it was true. I'm through, going scarlet. <laughs> I think it was particularly through, true through Project Catalyst, mm -hmm. which if you look at arguably any of the companies that have done anything in the last 10 years, uh, they are those that were championed by you and by the Project Catalyst thing. How important was that to you during your time there? Extremely important. Um, Project Catalyst was the name we gave to something that had a very pragmatic origin. If I recall correctly, we wanted to support a project award by Fergus of Trohur and either he couldn't make the budget work or he got it and it wasn't enough. And I want, and again, if you if you have these ambitions to have a particular type of programme, somewhere like Project, um, one of the ways to do is to support the artists that make that kind of work. So it was very pragmatic. And again, I can't really take the credit for Project Catalyst. I can take the credit to some extent for identifying the talent and for encouraging it and supporting it and sticking with people. But it's colleagues of mine like Annette um, Devoy and... Uh, Kate McSweeney and Eve uh, O'Donnell and other colleagues in press and marketing who did all the heavy lifting. Mm. Um, and that's really, you know, the, pragmatically, after having identified that somebody was worth supporting, it was all the logistical support and the practical support and the moral support that myself and particularly my colleagues gave to them right. that enabled Project Catalyst to happen. And I think we were initially calling them associate artists and we decided that, well, we were told or we decided that was either too vague or not sexy enough or maybe other organisations had associate artists that have, and it wasn't clear what, how we distinguished ourselves. But the catalyst was, um, the idea was that we just got, got to work with artists that we thought were interesting for the programme and relevant to the programme. And it kind of mushroomed. And I suppose you've got to take into account at the same time there's a generation of artists emerging as the production company model is becoming less favoured by the Arts yeah. Council who are less able to support it. So when I emerged with Luce Cannon around the same time, before or after, probably after most, like uh, Pan Pan or Corn Exchange or Bedrock, that was the model. Yeah. In order to receive public money, you had to set up a company structure, operate year-round with all of the overhead that it entailed, even though you might only be producing for three weeks of the year, if yeah. even. So that just wasn't available any, available anymore to these uh, younger artists. Not exclusively younger, but emerging. or um, Something like Annabel Common was coming back from the UK. Something like Fergus uh, was based in the UK, was starting to make, uh, or increasingly starting to make work in Ireland. So it was very pragmatic. It was one of the things that we could do, is we could use the infrastructure of project and we could help artists to make work, which is obviously a very nice fit. And, you know, again, it wasn't a kind of passive thing. I think, I remember, I think it was Annabelle Common or something saying when I was, uh, uh, the, when we were having a party in Project as I was leaving um, in the gallery, she was saying something like, like I, I have the right mixture of challenge and encouragement. 
So I'd be quite dogmatic as well. You know, somebody came to me and says, oh, we've heard about this Project Catalyst thing. Sounds great. Can we sign up? And I go, well, what is it that you want to do? And I go, actually, I don't think that idea is, I would be as blunt as say it's good. I might be as blunt as say it's not good. <laughs> but I might say it doesn't work or, you know, that's too ambitious. I don't think you're ever going to get a grant from the Arts Council for that. Yeah. You know, start small and grow big. But, you know, really, I have to, I, can't, I mean, I, I'm the person who has the opportunity to have the initial conversations with the artists. I was anyway in Project, but really... Somebody like Neil O'Donnell particularly deserves the credit for that. But we're a team. Yeah. It's a cool thing. Talk to me then about the exciting new challenges with the Dublin Theatre Festival. Such an iconic festival, even globally, I think it's fair to say. Uh, how exciting is it and terrifying is it to be well, here at the helm? I'll go back to, by way of answering that, I'll go back to this, what your statement about Project being the most important. I think Project is part of an ecology. Right. And if you look at the careers of artists, you can see them having, so you look, artists can work in the festival. They can work in Project, they can work in the Abbey and in the Gate. Probably Tom Creed is the person who's achieved all of that by now, as well as the Fringe, maybe not the only person. Um, so it's part of an ecology. And certainly there was a time, let's say, in the early uh, noughties when not many Irish artists were getting gigs, let's say, in the Abbey. Right. And uh, Project was, a, was a, certainly we, people like Wayne Jordan, um, Annabelle Common, Rachel West were making a lot of work in Project. But then Project can't necessarily sustain people. They were relying on Project arts council project awards and um so i don't see project being the best certainly can around more experimental practice but significantly on a smaller scale it can um, it can gather a critical mass of people and the amazing thing about project is that uh, when we did some talking to um our audience as part of a fundraising exercise there are people who get it know you and have been coming from 30 years and you don't know them just because they aren't there in the opening night when you're talking to you know colleagues and and other uh, grandees People, so for the, there's a small group of people, there's a significant group of people who understand Project and have been following it for years, for 30, 40 years in yeah. some cases. So what's wonderful about um, Project uh, is that it gives a visibility and a certain amount of critical mass for work that's more fledgling and more experimental and more, more, um, more edgy sometimes, uh, more risky. But back to the Theatre Festival. So yeah, I mean, again, I've been in Project for nine years and it had been going pretty well. Um, and I just thought I'd like to to have a new opportunity and the theatre festival was exciting I spoke kind of threshold and Lachlan would have identified it as well as that you know there's a new generation of artists coming through they can make works to see site specific or in the cube can they break through to the space upstairs or to it doesn't matter the space but the size of yeah. venue size of audience scale of financial outlay and attendant risk and artistic risk so with the theatre festival yeah I just thought that it probably is the right time I remember somebody saying to me once you should be running uh to a job rather than running from a job so I certainly was very happy in project though actually I was aware since my study of its history that I'm pretty sure I was a longest serving artistic director of the organisation right. kind of in a way thinking it's about time to get out of the way um, and let somebody else have a crack at it I was already kind of preoccupied with the fact that I was probably much older when I started than somebody like Fiek who was in his <laughs> 20s you know but um, yeah it's not that it's just a young person's job but I just think like but an organisation like project there are, it's, if there's an opportunity to do something else yeah um, uh, It'd be great to see what somebody else makes of it. What do you see as the big challenges for you with the festival? Uh, and again, a bit like the, the question of the project, have you any particular ambitions that you want to achieve in the next couple of years with the festival? I do. Um, I do. Um, there are lots of different challenges. So first of all, there's a very intense delivery period. Yeah. Um, you've got a huge range of, of scales and of types of work. There's you know, a, a difference between although we could probably figure out what the connections are too, there's a difference between something like the Boys of Foley Street, which have come this afternoon, uh, to an, an endeavour on the scale, both physical and in terms of its ambition, on the scale of Druid Murphy. Yeah. You know, so you end up, you have to be much more agile, 
sophisticated um, and uh, considered in terms of the type of program that you present. So I don't see it as, you know, suddenly you've got a much bigger programming budget. It's about indulging your own taste um, and you're let loose in the sweet shop. Of course, you do actually have an opportunity to eventually to present artists that you've admired and think will be of interest to the audience in Dublin. And um, uh, you have an opportunity to present them at least think about it if it'll work so the challenges are, are manifold but what I want to do I, I, I say and I kind of mean it is like I'd like the theatre festival to be like St. Patrick's Day or the All-Ireland I want it to be an iconic event for the city that people as know, know is going on that they want to participate or if they don't they're glad it's happening Right. and I think and I was very I mean, as I hope as a parent this year I was very determined even though we know I'm from Leash but I've lived in Dublin all my adult life I was born in Dublin and my children are um, that I wanted it to be a festival that's for Dublin in a way that doesn't that just doesn't happen in Dublin. Certainly that's, I mean, it's kind of amazing, but that's what outsiders are telling us, like Lynn Gardner, Susanna Clapp, are very much responding to this idea that Dublin relies on itself. And I think it's a really positive message as well, as we're a bit beleaguered at the moment. And a lot of the kind of Celtic Tiger nonsense was about spending money on external things and buying it in. That I think we, are, as a people, we are resilient. As theatre makers, we're very resourceful and very talented. And I think that the festival has an important role to be a catalyzer. We have to, on the one hand, be advocates for the artists and really helping them and pushing them to make great work but we also have to be an advocate for the audience not just to support them to come to see the show but actually to say you know what Dublin is great so that was one of my ambitions and you know what I say you know in our strategic plan is that we want to foster a sense of connection and community in the city uh, so the, the festival has a dedicated audience it has for many years but there is we haven't reached the ceiling for that yeah. and I think that um, and the, the, we've got to recognize that However many people we reach in Dublin, there are many more people that we can reach and that if we want to extend um, our increase our audience, it's not just about saying you can have a ticket for a tenner instead of 30 quid. We actually have to think more seriously. Now, having said that, we're, we have challenges in terms of how uh, we operate within our limited budgets to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but we've already been having kind of initial conversations with the city council to say, how can we make more people participate in the cultural life of the city? And what I'd also like to do is, I mean, it's, it's been responded to very positively that there's so much Irish work that, this year. And um, people said, oh, is that because you haven't got any money? No, it's not because <laughs> we haven't got any money. Actually, we in, we've invested in Irish shows this year because yeah. we want to make them happen, because we want the festival to make a difference. But we have to get that balance right between having really good Irish work. There's a risk because if it's new, you haven't seen it before, versus international work that can kind of move on the conversation for the audience and also for the artists in terms of what this art form theatre looks like can do right now in the 21st century. So it's important to achieve a balance. What Susanna Clapp was saying was that we're not like, did she say, a magic mix festival. And I do think that the festival is very rooted in Dublin. And in a way, it seems like a truism, what you're doing a festival about Dublin, but it's always been in Dublin. It's always had stuff about Dublin. But I really wanted to kind of like put the emphasis on that this year. And if you think about the work in the festival, you've got so many different, there's not a kind of a, an ideological hard line. And Dublin can be lots of things. It can be Philip McMahon's Pineapple. It can be uh, Emma Donoghue's The Talk of the Town. It can be um, Declan Hughes's The Last Summer. It can be The Boys of Foley Street. It can be Annie Ryan and... Uh, <laughs> Annie Ryan and Michael West's adaptation of James Joyce's Dubners. So you see that this is actually a multifaceted offering, not something that I, I keep saying to people, it's the festival's not like an obstacle course, whereas only if you climb over and under everything, you've got to the end and you've succeeded. Yes. The idea is to say that there are lots of different opportunities according to your interest, your stamina and your wallet to participate in the festival. But underscoring that is some kind of idea that people gathering together and sharing an experience in the city is a valuable thing to do, a worthwhile thing to do. It sounds like my Miss World speech, but I mean it. I mean no, it. No, that's a beautiful thing. Finally and briefly, uh, you're only starting in this gig now, and there's an awful lot of exciting stuff to come down the track, but looking further down the road, ambition-wise for you, world domination, ownership of the Abbey, all of the above, have you unfulfilled ambitions? 
Um, I, the unfulfilled ambition is to do my next Dublin Theatre Festival. I mean, I've, really, seriously, um, I've learned so much this year. You've got to take into account that I started in September. Yeah. Two, three weeks before the festival um, was began. And I watched it all happening but without, without any real understanding of what was going on. I've now done a year. So I'm going, okay, now I know. Now I know how a decision that you make in November, apparently you know, with the best information that you think you have and reason, your reason decision, actually you don't like the look of it in June. Right. So I've done all of the parts of the year and all of the set pieces of the year and I think I have a much better understanding of um, how it works. And I think the festival next year will be different, but it'll still hold to the values that we've managed to express this year. Um, but yeah, my ambition is now I'm, I'm to start thinking about next year's festival and the one after. In terms of world domination, I live in Dublin. That's where I want to stay. And that's where my uh, uh, children are going to school. And uh, I think Ireland is where I'm invested in. Um, yeah, so we'll see. I just have to do a few good festivals before I start thinking about anything else. That's great. Willie, thank you so much for taking the time out of this ridiculously busy time of year for you to come and have a chat with us. I really appreciate it. But we'll let you go now because I do have to pitch my one-man Hamlet to you for the main okay. stage <laughs> in the Abbey next year for the festival. So, Willie, thank so you so much. Thank you. So there you have it, the brilliant Willie White. Uh, I'm so glad we got the chance to get him on the podcast, particularly at such a busy time of the year for him. Uh, really delighted. He's a guy who, as you all know, I have a huge amount of time for, and a guy who I have to say I'm absolutely delighted is now at the helm of the Theatre Festival. I think it could not be in a safer pair of hands, uh, and I think Willie is going to take it and run with it and grow the festival uh, for the next few years. I'm, I'm so excited that he's in charge. I think he's... Uh, all round a great guy. So look, that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of what is going on around Dublin and indeed around the country. And uh, of course, what's going on around Dublin, the Dublin Theatre Festival finishing up this weekend. So uh, go out there and snap up the last few tickets of uh, of any shows that are still available. I know an awful lot of them sold ridiculously well this year, which is you know, a beautiful thing to go and see. Um, of course, as we then move around Dublin, the Viking Theatre out in Clontarf has a little show called Fight Night. Come and see us. We're running there till the 20th. We'd love to have you. No show on Thursday the 18th though because I'm going off doing something very exciting that I might tell you about in a little while um, So, uh, but we're there till Saturday the 20th and uh, we'd love to have you out there like I said before I think it's only about 8 or 9 minutes out in the bus so uh, it ain't so far out come on out and see us and for all you fellow Northsiders out there now you have no excuse come and see this show on home turf um, as we go to theatre upstairs where we will of course be bringing fight night in a couple of weeks time we're there at the end of the month over what is the midterm break if you happen to be married to a teacher like I am um, we're there from uh, Tuesday the 30th, the day after the bank holiday, Tuesday the 30th through to Saturday, November 3rd. Uh, you can come and see us at Theatre Upstairs, but for the moment they have Dubliner's Dilemma there. Um, Bewley's has Dice Man, and that'll be followed there by Down by the River with the brilliant Michael Bates, which has been just touring around the country and taking over the world, which I'm delighted to see for Michael because he's such a great actor. Um, the new theatre has Family Voices and One for the Road, which is that Pinter double bill from Fast Intent Theatre Company, which I'm hearing only super things about, so I'm going to go and uh, see if I can in any way catch that uh, before it finishes up the run if it can get juggle the fight night stuff to go and see it um, at the Olympia Theatre we have the night Joe Dolan's car broke down uh, Marie Claire is at Theatre at 36 as well in Dublin um, as we look around the country then in Galway uh, the Babaro International Arts Festival for Children is going on which is an amazing lineup if you have any young folk uh, that you want to bring and you're down towards the west of the country um, you can get all the information on all the numerous shows and 
workshops and events there at babaro.ie uh, heading up north the lyric in Belfast has The Long Road by Sheila Stevenson um, and the Mac has a very interesting show called Huzzies which looks really really interesting to me kind of a musical piece there uh, which I might see if I can head north of the border to go and try and catch um, as we head south the Cork Opera House has uh, Romeo and Juliet from Cork Adorca and the Pavilion in Cork has Sweet Pang is Innocent um, Meath we go to uh, the Solstice Arts Centre and uh, Tuesdays with Murray that uh, touring production of that which is just you know again taking over the country it's been touring everywhere uh, is in Solstice uh, at the moment and that's before it goes into the Gaiety Theatre um, which is an amazing transfer for that I'm delighted to see it's going as well as it is um, and then also one to note is uh, in Kildare at the Riverbank Theatre on Saturday at 6 in the evening um, it's the launch of uh, Tom Swift's selected plays which uh, as any of you know from uh, seeing me and do my work over the years uh, my work with Performance Corporation has been some of the happiest work that I've done and I think Tom Swift is an exceptional writer uh, I'm delighted to see that he's getting the recognition he deserves because he's just such a, a funny witty guy who writes really great great plays I mean some of my happiest times in the theatre both uh, as an actor but more importantly as an audience member have been at performance corporation shows uh, and you know and they're all written by Tom uh, or at least the uh, the majority of them are uh, so I'm delighted to see that they'll be launching that book that's uh, Saturday at 6 at the Riverbank Theatre uh, do head down there to see because they're doing a whole series of readings uh, with a lot of uh, um, performance corp alumni I think is probably what you describe them as some of the great performance corporation actors obviously I can't be there because I'm tied up with fight night but uh, I really wish I could be there to see that launch and um, all the details on that you'll find at riverbank.ie so look that is us that is episode 49 in the books which means next week we'll be coming up to the big round number of episode 50 which is just mind-boggling um but I'm delighted we've made it this far look you know we will of course be back next week for that episode 50 and another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. For Angus Og McAnally, I'm Angus Og McAnally. We'll see you next week. Bye.